nigga live right now, man. It's going down, excited for the season. You know, we coming off a playoff win. I mean, you know, we had a couple wins. Winning game four, at least pride-wise, made me feel good because you don't ever want to get swept. I'm indifferent to him, whether or not he signs it. I'll be uh, hitting Milwaukee for the next five years. If you ask me, can the Bucks win game five? I put it at 40% confidence, yes. To think that, that a season is championship or bust is is um, certainly not the way we've approached it. At this point, we don't know what's going to happen. You can get game six. You can steal it. Championship or bust. Winning game six and seven. Championship or bust. I don't think they're going to win the whole series, but... There is no enjoyment with this team. Hello, and welcome to the Brew Hoop Podcast, Episode 84. I'm Adam Paris, co-managing editor of BrewHoop.com, joined as per usual by Riley Feldman and Kyle Carr. Fellas, how are we doing today? <laughs> I'm heartbroken right now, honestly. It's uh, it's not right for me after what happened this past week to be the first one to say how I'm doing. So, Kyle, why don't you go first, and then Adam, and then I'll get into it. Well, it's cold as hell. I'm not enjoying it, and I'm... Still getting my phone blown up because I simply said Tom Brady is not the greatest athlete of all time. And people are not happy that I said that. And on the other side, there's a lot of people that are happy that I said that. So I'm trying to deal with the newfound fame I apparently have. It's it's an interesting twist. It looked good to me, Kyle. You're not even close to getting ratioed. It seems like it seems like you're, you the annals of history will will shine brightly upon that tweet. And I'm starting to think I need to get a SoundCloud. Maybe I'll have to use this podcast for the SoundCloud <laughs> link. Yeah, wait. I didn't. I didn't look at the at the second reply. Did you reply to it and be like, "Hey, man, check out my SoundCloud"? Did you reply to that and be like, "Hey, man, check out my work on Brew Hoop"? I have not done that yet. I don't know. I don't know what the <laughs> amount of likes and retweets I need to have in order to make that kind of comment. I'm probably approaching it. And by the time this episode uploads, I might have already done it. But again, newfound fame, I guess. It's all about the downloads. You could zig where other people zag. Everybody else does the SoundCloud and you don't even have to do any sort of words. Just do a link to panic at the 414 and people like, what the hell is happening here? Like that'll just be the art (laughs) the reply instead. Say no words at all. Just put that article up. That's all you need to do. (laughs) I, I always feel bad. Yeah, I always feel bad when people do that reply tweet, and I'm like, I don't think anyone clicked on this, but appreciate <laughs> you, you you putting the putting the effort in and trying for it. Uh, I'm doing all right. It was really it was pretty warm the last two days, like 45, and everyone was freaking out about four to six more inches of snowfall coming down today. We're recording on a Sunday, but um, I was just outside and it's all melting as soon as it hits the ground. So uh, premature panic out here in Philly, but. That's okay. Are you able, have you gone sledding yet, like to show off your Midwestern credentials to be like, watch me catch this gnar off like, you know, a small hill in Philadelphia? God, I would love to, but I think it probably would have been more viable when um, there was just like buildup of garbage over the summer from when recycling wasn't coming <laughs> to pick up. There's, there's not a lot of elevation here in the city and the, the snow, this there wasn't much snow. There's, there's like some giant packs of it along one of our streets here that I probably could have slid down and would have gotten like honked at and, and gone right into ongoing oncoming traffic. But um <laughs> no, not a lot of hills within the within the city itself, unfortunately. 
did you guys ever like I, I don't know if this is a Wisconsin thing but like in neighborhoods for whatever reason if there was any sort of like cul-de-sac or like circular section of houses or something they would just put a ginormous pile of snow in the middle of the street and just leave it do you guys ever see that and slide or whatever sled off of those I've seen it I've never sled off of it um I was gonna say there's definitely parts in my neighborhood where there's kind of like medians and they just pack like all the snow there and I've been half tempted to do it but because our street isn't that busy, but no, I've not, I've not done it. I, I, no, I have not seen it. I grew up on a farm. So our, our sled was like my dad strapping a piece of plastic to the back of the four wheeler and just like driving <laughs> us around telling us to hold on for dear life. Yeah. Some people do, they do a uh, wakeboarding or whatever. You guys do ATV boarding. That's what yeah. you guys do. <laughs> Good stuff. Uh. Well, how are you, well, Riley, how are you doing? We do, we, I'd be remiss if we didn't give you your opportunity here. I've been dreading this, guys. I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> uh, you know, going into the week, I had pretty high expectations that I was going to get definitively proven correct. And instead, I gave my heart away. I gave it, put it in Malcolm's hands, and he threw it away. And quite rightly, Kyle went into the group chat. He sent a gif of, I believe it was Randy Orton, the WWE wrestler, <laughs> pulling a metal chair out from under the ring uh, in preparation to bash some opponent over the head with it. And I've I've been waiting for that all week, so uh, you know it's gonna <laughs> I'm not gonna have much to say for the Pages game. So I, I'm doing okay otherwise, but I've been dreading this for that reason alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. I think I'm gonna be a lot nicer now that I was if this if we had recorded right after the game. But you know, sometimes you gotta hit your wagon on a player, but when said player lays a ginormous egg <laughs> because they're not as good as his yep. replacements. Yep. It's gonna be like that sometimes. It is gonna be like that. Wow. Well, we'll get into, we'll get into that. There'll be plenty of time. We'll let Riley sort of put strap some some plastic on his back, some cushions, some pillows, so he can prepare. But in the meantime, <clears throat> let's uh, before we get into that, let's talk about this Portland Blazers Portland Trail Blazers game. Um, Bucks beat the Blazers one thirty four to one hundred six. Was really never in in doubt. It felt like the Bucks got out to an early lead after like the first, the first period was a little bit of back and forth. You could see Damian Lillard hit some threes. It seemed like they were chopping up the bucks, pick and roll coverage pretty well, splitting the pick and roll with some passes and that kind of stuff. Uh, but the bucks started hitting their threes and the blazers did not, they wound up shooting in the mid thirties, mid to low thirties from three. And Giannis finishes with 18.6 assists, drew 22.6 assists, three steals, Chris, 17 points, nine assists, just six field goal attempts for him, which is absolutely insane. Big night from the bench. Bobby Portis, 21 points. Bryn Forbes and DJ Augustine have 13 each. This was a this was a get-well game in uh, every sense of the word, Riley, as the Bucks really lay it on the, uh, a Blazers team that was without C.J. McCollum. Yeah, so, you know, as any time you play an opponent where they're missing, like, their, you know, number two guy, you have to be a little bit of caveat. But at the same time, Damian Lillard is obviously still a very dangerous opponent, and the fact that they play so much pick and roll between him and Enos Cantor is slightly a different look from what you see from a lot of other teams. But you're right that if you took aside the really hot three-point shooting from Milwaukee, the main takeaways were uh, if a team doesn't have any sort of 
viable interior defender like Enos Cantor. He's just, you know, that guy's definition of a traffic cone. And Giannis took advantage of that all night long. I mean, he was in transition, passing out from like, you know, a pick and roll or whatever to find guys open on three. So I thought we were really effective from there. And then if you looked at like a quarter by quarter breakdown of how many minutes Damian Lillard played and how many minutes Drew Holiday played, they exactly mirrored one another. So Drew Holiday, besides being a dynamo on offense, his whole thing was, I'm going to shut down Damian Lillard. He did it a couple years ago as part of the Pelicans when they swept the Trailblazers in that playoff series. Um, and it, it played out again on Monday where Drew is so good at, maybe he's not quick enough to stay directly in front of Damian, but he's always looking to beat him to the basketball or at least make it uncomfortable where Damian can't get the ball and keep moving. He has to kind of pick it up and reset from there. And so that kind of played out in the fact that I think Lillard only had 17 points. It seemed like it was never really an easy look for him all night long. And so the fact that Drew was able to get assigned to a guy who's a bit smaller than him, a bit quicker than him, stay on him, be really productive offensively, and continue to be a force on defense. I thought of all the games so far this season, this probably was the biggest standout for Drew just because the ability to shut down one of the best perimeter players in the league. And I was going to say, Riley, with you mentioning Enos Cantor being a traffic cone, that definitely was evident with Milwaukee just con- like Giannis was able to get points in the paint at will. It was similar to playing the Pistons in which there's not really a strong enough interior defender. So Milwaukee getting 52 points in the paint went a long ways and that helped with their shooting because they were able to get the ball moving a lot more, 38 assists, which might be the highest they've had all season. They also really got out in the fast break, uh, getting 29 points, something that we hadn't seen much of the last couple games, whether it's an effort thing, whether it's just we know we can get to the rim with against this team, so we're going to do so. But Milwaukee, was they had the ball moving. Yes, it is the Trailblazers who were never going to be a good defensive team. Yes, they're missing CJ McCollum, but this is you still have to perform, and Milwaukee's ball movement was really good. Their three-point shooting, obviously, was really good, but this was Drew Holiday's best game, I think, so far this season until maybe last night. Maybe last night was another one, but it just felt as though whatever Milwaukee had said or whatever Milwaukee had realized after the back-to-back losses to the Pelicans and Hornets the previous week, they really made sure to not give as many wide-open looks from three that Trailblazers had. And I mean, the Blazers were hitting a couple of those early on in the game, but it seemed that had started to taper off. And I mean, you just have to look like Covington was only one of five. Dame was only two of seven. Gary Trent Jr. was two of eight. You know, they really made sure to not let guys get wide open threes. And if that came at the expense of Damian Lillard running a pick and roll to get, you know, Nasir Little or Enos Cantor points in the paint, then so be it. But they made more of an effort to not allow as many open threes, which was a welcoming sign. You know what was beautiful to see of everything else? So we, we talked a little bit about Drew. This was a game where the Bucks, by, like you said, Adam, especially after the first half, it was kind of a wrap. I think they were up like 20-something at the half. Um, in all of that, Giannis never decided to take a three for, you know, just just because. And I just looked it up. So the Bucks so far this season are 7-1 and one when Giannis takes three or fewer three-point attempts. They're 7-7 seven and seven when he takes more than four three-point attempts from the floor. Obviously, I'm not sure if you could say correlation is causation or something there. However, this is a game where he easily, because we were up big, he'd be like, ah, just 
I'll work on my three-point shot a little bit because what the hell else are we doing out there? And and instead, I, I think this past week encapsulated Giannis really identifying what his strengths are. And even if there's a mismatch or even if there's a possibility of, oh, I can you know waste three possessions with like a three-point shot or whatever, he still kept attacking. And you know, as Kyle said, the lack of interior defense, he identifies that. Um, and he, he bends the trailblazers too as well. And to be honest, it, it was easy baskets for him. So if it's going to continue to be easy, no need to then experiment with other stuff. Keep practicing at what you're really good at. And I think we saw that not only in the trailblazers game, but in the rest of the games throughout this week too. Yeah, that blazers game. Absolutely. Let's de- we should definitely have a longer conversation about Giannis's decision not to really shoot three pointers, at least in this, <clears throat> this game, we'll do it after the Pacers game as well. You could definitely tell defensively, like Kyle said, they were making, seemed to be making a pretty conscious effort. I think it was, especially early on, you could tell that they were doing some of the, some of the stuff that they've done against Steph Curry earlier this year. You could see them bringing out the bigs. They were playing the pick and rolls up significantly higher, which like Kyle was saying, was able to lead to some of the, when the Blazers would slip that pick and roll, they'd be able to get some of those passes to guys in the interior. But that's when you sort of trust someone on the back end to clean it up. Typically, that's going to be Giannis. And that seemed to work really well. And then once the Bucks, once the Bucks kind of had it rolling in terms of three-point percentage, the Blazers just did not have enough firepower to come back in any sort of meaningful way. So really promising result against a team that on paper could have given them a lot of trouble given their second in the league in terms of percentage of shots that come from the three-point arc. So it's always something that's that's troubling and you're going to want to watch. But really promising performance for them against Damian Lillard. And it was... I mean, it was the starters decimating the other starters. If you look at the the single game plus minus, I mean, Inez Cantor is minus 33, Dame is minus 32, and that's just in 25 or 27 minutes. So you can tell this game was over early. Uh, I mean, the, Bud was able to keep all of his starters basically under 30 minutes besides Drew, who wound up going 30. But uh, big game from the bench, big game all around. Everyone was shooting hot, and the Bucks were able to, to win out. Um, then obviously, the next game taking on the Indiana Pacers, we see a semi-similar result in terms of a route. Bucks beat the Pacers 130 to 110. Giannis, a a really patient performance, 21 points, 14 rebounds, 10 assists on just eight shots. Middleton and Holiday, quieter game from them, 23 points combined on 18 shots. Again, a big game from Bring Forbes and Bobby Portis. Portis has 18, Forbes has 20. And then Kyle, I was looking at the box score. It looks like Malcolm Brogdon was held to 12 points on 5 of 17 shooting. You hate to see a guy like Malcolm and see his teammates let him down like that, really. I mean, when a guy has to do everything like that to make it happen, you hate to see Miles Turner score three points and Jeremy Lamb score two points. It's uh, it's disappointing as a fan of Malcolm to see that happen. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of tough when you only score 12 <laughs> points and you're 5 of 17 from the field and you're a minus 25. Meanwhile, Dante DiVincenzo, 16 points, 4 of 8 from 3. <laughs> what a man. Highest plus minus out of everyone, plus 36. Drew Holiday, because we decided to keep Bloodsell and then turn it into Drew Holiday, 11 <laughs> points. Five, seven rebounds, three assists, still a ho-hum, but was clamping down Malcolm Brockton, had him shook, had him scared. It, it was, <laughs> we love to see it. It's not, I mean, is it really Brockton's fault? I would say if I was Sabonis, I would be looking at Brockton like, where the hell were you? Why didn't you contribute? Miles Turner is whatever. Like, you're not, to get more, if you're expecting more out of Miles Turner, you're not going to be a winning team. But 
Sabonis has got to look at Brogdon and be like, I thought you were this big guy. I thought you were this big dog. This is your team now. Like, you wanted the ball. I gave you the ball, and this is what you do. Do better. Just absolutely do better. Doug McDermott outscored you. Like, what is this nonsense? <laughs> I, I, I really, for two things before we actually, in a serious manner at all, talk about this game, I want to know, I want somebody to sit down and plot out the, like, revolving doors of, like, oh, we got rid of Malcolm, but we got kept Eric, so Eric equals Drew and Dante equals. So I want to do, like, the butterfly effect of that. And then the second one, I know there's no answer to this, but I really want to know if there's ever a chance that we can say definitively one way or the other whether or not the Bucks won or lost the Malcolm Brogdon decision. If neither side, if neither of them wins a title, does that mean it's a wash? It like, is, <laughs> I just don't know what the evaluation is going to be like once it's you know 20, 30 years from now. How are we going to look back on the on the Pacers Malcolm Brogdon unity? I don't know. Well, we have to wait for those the second round picks. We have to wait for all of those to play out because th- I'm pretty sure we have like a 2025 second rounder from them. So we have to see who that turns into. You never know. I mean, clearly you can tell, like a lot of people thought, Wara and Merrill, that shooting they're bringing, clearly the Bucks are going to need them this year. It's important <laughs> that they're on the roster. So I, I think we'll have to wait a while, Riley. But um, for now, Kyle brought point, the chair. point against me. Yeah, Kyle, Kyle brought the chair. It's true. Yeah, he won this one. It's true. I dominated this one. I don't know what you're talking about. The score <laughs> makes it seem, the final score makes it seem very generous that it was only a 20 point victory, and that's only because the bench was the bench. I mean, the Nazis played eight minutes. That's all you got to say. He was a minus 15. Well, and, and in watching the game, so I didn't get, because the score went against my guy, and obviously I'm a coward, so I didn't want to watch the embarrassment <laughs> fall. In in watching some of the, not even the highlights, like a more condensed version of the game, was it just more of a, so you guys can kind of explain a little bit more, but it seemed like for whatever reason they had Malcolm Brogdon guarding Giannis, which feels like a mistake. I don't know what they were doing there. Like, isn't Miles Turner supposed to be like a do-it-all defensive guy? So was it? You know, more so, again, like a matter of hot shooting and Giannis just kind of having nobody who could stop him on defense. Like, what was it that really keyed things up? Besides, obviously, Malcolm struggling from the floor. I would say it was a combination. I mean, at times, they Brogdon mainly guarded Giannis when Giannis was over in the post or kind of like in the lower block area. That's when Brogdon would kind of step up. And I think they were trying to do that to mainly double Giannis and force him to like either draw a foul or make a bad pass and Giannis didn't do it his decision making was again really really good in this game and I think that contributed Milwaukee also hit 21 threes which is going to help a lot especially that like the third quarter was really when everything broke loose because the game was still mildly competitive I mean it was still I mean it was still a double digit lead at halftime but it was not one of those where it's like okay call it call it a night but that third quarter Milwaukee just really imposed its will on the Pacers. And because I was going to say, the Pacers had more points in the paint. The Pacers only, they had three less fast break points than Milwaukee. It was even in turnovers. It, it was just that Milwaukee shot the three ball better. And then Indiana just hit a cold stretch. And once they hit a cold stretch and the Bucks are still hitting their shots, then it became, then it was just on, they couldn't catch up to it. So I think it was just a combination of Milwaukee shot the ball really, really well again. Giannis improved decision-making, and I wouldn't say there wasn't much of a rim protection as well, but it, it's kind of tough when your front court is Turner and Sabonis, and Sabonis is more of an offensive player, not really much on defense, while Turner is supposed to be that rim protector, but he, I don't know what it was with him. It feel, he just felt invisible that whole game. 
Well, he, I guess in fairness to him, I did, <clears throat> I didn't realize how bad his injuries were. He had like a broken hand or something, um, which if I had a broken hand, I wouldn't want to try and block too many shots either. But I, w- I would agree. It was, I thought it was an interesting choice to put, um, to put Brogdon on Giannis early. I guess the, the theory there is like the Jay Crowder theory. It, you know, get a guy who's a little bulkier, someone who's a little quicker, who can maybe stay in front of him and keep him from from driving all the time. But basically they would just, they would get him in a pick and roll and then Giannis would all of a sudden have Turner on him and he'd be able to beat him around a corner pretty easily when Turner's with, Turner was around on the perimeter. And Sabonis isn't going to offer any backside help. And then, like Kyle said, uh, Giannis's decision-making was really, really strong in this one. You could see him not wanting to force it when he was able to, he would try and kick it out to a shooter pretty easily. There's a really interesting uh, breakdown of how the Bucks attacked the Pacers defense, actually on IndyCornrows.com by Caitlin Cooper, who's a really good writer over there. If anyone's interested in checking out the, that, they should. She's, she talked about how basically the Pacers are, their defense is really built around kind of digging in to try and stop the drive, but then shuffling out to to return to the shooter. And that's just a, a sort of a recipe for disaster when Giannis is passing like this. You know, he can come in and ev- clearly everyone, he's going to attract so much attention. And then if he can swing it back to the to the weak side, there's not going to be anyone really over there. And, and you saw that a couple times with, uh, obviously, Bryn Forbes shooting four of seven from three was was a huge beneficiary of it. If Bobby Porters goes four of, four or five from deep, Dante four of eight. Um, so I thought there was some really, really promising stuff there um, offensively in terms of attacking what the Pacers were trying to do. And I think the Pacers, I think the Bucks also just decided to let Sabonis get his shots. And because it's not like Sabonis was taking a lot of threes either. A lot of it was around the rim. A lot of it is mid-range. So they kind of, it was kind of similar to Vucevic when they played the Magic. It's like, okay, this guy's going to get his shots. He's going to get his, you know, 20, 30 points. That's fine, but try and make sure that other players do not chip in and get hot as well. The other thing I will say that I was interesting is you could tell, contrasting it with the game just a couple days earlier against Damian Lillard, which like Malcolm Brogdon is not Damian Lillard, but there was very little respect for Malcolm Brogdon as a shooter in this game. Tons of zone drop. Brooke Lopez was not not playing high up on Milcom Brogdon at all. They were letting him shoot as many mid-rangers as he wanted. And that was the other thing is that he, Malcolm Brogdon, instead of like going around, moving up the, the pick action higher and letting Milcom Brogdon run into a three, for a lot of the game, he was like running into the mid-range and shooting a mid-range shot and it, and it wasn't necessarily falling. So this game was a lot of, a lot of zone drop. And I think that's something that I th- is worth investigating after this. We talk about this whole state of games is, I did not see a lot of switching this week. You could see a little bit of situational switching. In this one, I saw a little bit of when it was like uh, Jeremy Lamb and Miles Turner doing some pick and roll on, on Bobby Portis and Giannis. They were doing a little bit of switching, which which makes sense. That's something we've been talking about and asking for, given Bobby's occasional troubles with the zone drop scheme. But for the most part, it was a lot of zone drop in this game, and it, and it worked to perfection given the Pacers didn't hit their threes. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, I think, and we're going to talk about the Cavs games here as well, but you could tell even in the Cavs games, was like when Brooke was out there, and I think it's probably recognizes a little bit of the fact that Brooke is most effective as a defender when you zone drop him, even if, you know, you're giving up, you know, shots that you don't like or whatever, you, you prefer him out there rather than totally having a hole in your defense because Brooke doesn't have the foot speed to catch up. Whereas, you know, you could tell 
for example, in last night's Cavs game, the entire time that Brooke was out there, nothing. And then they started switching a little bit when it was like Drew and Bobby were out there. So when it was the bench guys. So I think a lot of it is we're going to continue to incorporate it with more athletic guys like Bobby Portis. Um, one, because that fits his style better and he's just not as effective as Brooke is. And I think that's, you know, if you want to specialize your defense and lean one way or the other based on your big guy, I think that only makes sense. So if that's what they did in the Pacers game as well, then I think it just kind of fits with a trend of trying to better identify which defensive system works best with, especially the big guy. Because Giannis, he, he's kind of an off-ball guy either way, um, and Drew can do a little bit either way, so then you adjust based on that, you know, the other personnel. Yeah, so another promising victory for the Bucks, and then we move on to another Central Division opponent in the Cleveland Cavaliers. They headed to headed to Cleveland for a back-to-back mini-series against them. That first game wound up having some mechanical issues with their plane the night before they were supposed to fly in, so they wound up having to fly in Friday morning at around 7.30 a.m. or something. But didn't seem to deter the Bucks as they beat the Cavaliers 123 to 105. Giannis has 33 points, 12 rebounds. Chris heads 15. Drew 17 points. Dante 11 points, 11 rebounds, six assists. Really, the story from that one, Riley, was the Bucks' absolute uh, dedication to scoring in the paint. 74 points in the paint, only makes seven three pointers, and they still pull out a, a pretty sound victory. Yeah, and, and I think it's probably more so. This is. Again, one of the other themes this week has been if the opponent has some sort of structural weakness in their starting lineup, just go and attack it. And if your only size really is Andre Drummond, it's not that Andre Drummond's a bad defender. Uh, He's obviously a really great rebounder, but we even saw it against even the Nets where it's like, oh, they have to pull, they have to commit DeAndre Jordan uh, to somebody, whether it be Brooke or Giannis, and that leaves the other guy open. And in this case, it's a similar situation with Andre Drummond where it's like, well, you have to commit to either Brooke on the perimeter or you have to try and keep up with Giannis and everybody else has to just kind of be there. And in both the first and the second game, between taking Drummond out of the play a little bit and Giannis, I think, really dedicating down to um, passing out and he's been really in control of, as you said, driving and then kicking out. I think it it was especially on display in the second game where I think Brandon going perfect from the floor from three, for example, or like a lot of action between him and Bobby Portis, a little bit of pick and roll. So I thought it was just, again, between both the Cavs games, but the first one as well, the ability to scheme a guy, the main defensive opponent out of the way, and then just take advantage of it. Um, And once you get past that, the talent disparity is just kind of on display. Like Colin Sexton's a good player, but and if he's not having a really great game, everybody else on the roster, it's tough for them to keep up, even against like a so-so performance. And the Bucks didn't play so-so. I think Drew was also almost perfect from the floor. So um, I don't know. It, I think talent disparity and then scheming was what helped the Bucks out here. Yeah, I would say that. Plus, the Cavaliers are probably a few wing players, like good wing players away from actually being a consistent playoff team. Sexton and Garland are two good guards that you want to have. Drummond is, I am surprised that Drummond is still effective in this modern NBA and props to him. It is kind of more of a, I think the Bucks also knew kind of like what you're saying, how to attack this team and they didn't have to play. They didn't have the same offensive firepower as they did in the first two games. In fact, they, I think in the first quarter, they didn't hit a three. I think they were like 0 for 8 from 3. It was going to look like that kind of game after the first quarter, but 
they slowly chipped in. They realized just go to the pain and continue getting those points. And when you have something that works that well and you have someone like Giannis, who, again, has improved decision-making, Dante DiVincenzo all-around had a good game. Like It was just like a lot of players had an all-around good enough game for Milwaukee to win. And it was just once it got to that fourth quarter, I think it was – I think Cleveland only scored like – 15 16 points like i don't think they scored a lot so maybe it was just like the bench going like the team going cold at the wrong time but it was this was more interesting of a game than the second one just because at least the first one it was pretty competitive from the first three quarters it wasn't until that fourth quarter until milwaukee was able to pull away yeah absolutely so the the bucks finally kind of hit some threes in that fourth quarter you have uh dante even Giannis, and drew Hitting threes in that fourth quarter kind of extends the lead and really salts it away. Lots of patience from Giannis in this one, even though he took a couple three-pointers, which obviously we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, some really good moves. I mean, he they put this two-way guy, Stevens, Lamar Stevens, on him, which obviously like could have led to a disaster where he's just getting offensive foul after offensive foul trying to attack this guy. Um, and not that Stevens, you know, would be super great at, at knowing how to absorb that contact, but... You know, Stevens was playing off of him, and there was definitely times where he could have, Giannis could have taken a three, but he was patient enough and decided to, you know, work back into a look, have like Lopez screen for him. Giannis works around, gets like a 10 foot pull up. There's a couple times where he gets the ball and clearly could have taken the three, but decides to continue working around, gets to the free throw line, either kicks out or works his way patiently in. We saw a really nice post move on. Torian Prince down low, like a really great fake out that you, you could see on Twitter. That was a really nice move. So just tons of patience from Giannis in this one without feeling like he's he's forcing it from outside. And, and I don't know. Let, let's talk about the Giannis not taking three-pointers. I I don't – I wouldn't say it's – the argument shouldn't be as black and white as that. I, I, what, what type of – why – like what type of three-pointers would you want him to take, Riley, if any? Hmm. None. <laughs> no. You want to take none? No, 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 no. So I think I like – so he seems to be most comfortable, and I don't know if – for whatever reason it feels like they've moved away from it. That one Tony Snell inbound play where he would inbound it to Tony Snell who would pass it immediately back to him right above the break, and then he would take the three. He seemed to be comfortable with that. As usual, I'm not sure if there's necessarily like a number. Like I think – I don't know, sometime this season he took like three or like eight three-pointers. That should not be happening. Like that's, that's, <laughs> that's a crime. But in 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 the flow of the offense, there are times where he'll get it out on the wing or out on the corner and he moves into his motion. It looks like he's going to take it. And then last second he stops. And I think that's really detrimental to what he's trying to do. Like, you know, why is he pump faking? I would be okay with his threes if, again, it was within the flow of the offense and it's just a catch-and-shoot sort of situation. For whatever reason, I would have to go look at the stats. I could probably go pull it up. But it feels like a lot of his three-point attempts that he gets, especially when he's really bad and he continues to take them for whatever reason, is like totally out of the flow of the offense. He'll get the ball. He'll stand there for four seconds. And then he'll like decide to shoot when a defender doesn't close out on him. And that's just – that that doesn't work. Like commit to the catch-and-shoot three-pointer. I, I don't mind it that much if – you look like any other perimeter player where it's like, okay, you have an open shot. You have a decent shot. Just take it. Don't worry about it. it and like I said, it worked out this week where he was patient enough. He moved inside. He, you know, the Cavaliers didn't have much for him. He's passing out. He gets good buckets for other people anyhow. But 
if you're going to be taking threes, just do it in the in motion, man. Don't it don't worry about it. Like don't overthink it. Don't wait to identify and waste a bunch of time before doing it. So I'm not sure if there's a number, but it's more so the type of three pointer and the walk up the as Kyle said, the heat check that nobody asked for. We don't need the heat check that nobody asked for the first possession of the game. We can avoid those three point shots. Yeah, I mean, like I have no problem with Giannis shooting the three if it's wide open, if it's not within the first nine seconds of the shot clock. If it's like twelve, if it's if it's in like the ten to fifteen range and you're wide open, totally fine. Shoot it. I have no problem with that decision, but just make sure to not hesitate when doing so. Like you get the ball, you you're open. You know you're open. You shoot it right away. Like don't hold it for like five seconds. Don't dribble for a little bit. Just shoot the damn ball. Like that's. I'm okay with the honest taking that kind of three, but the heat check no one asked for, the standing around realizing nothing's going to happen, and then you decide to fire, like those aren't beneficial for anyone. I just pulled up some of the numbers here. Who do you guys think leads the Bucks in terms of pull up three pointers? I feel the like Forbes. So, sorry, just in terms of raw attempts per game. I, I think Bryn Forbes is right. The Kyle said. Oh wait, like I'm going to say Dante. <laughs> Maybe. Wait for, for said, pull up. Okay, pull up three pointers. Who leads the team in terms of raw attempts? Oh, just straight up walk. It, it might be Giannis for all the stupid stuff that he does. Just because he's the one who walks up with the ball and then, as we said, pulls up. Whereas Chris seems to either catch and shoot or he like dribble. I don't know. It may be Giannis. I'm sticking with Dante. It's Giannis. All right, it's Giannis at 3.1 per game. In second is is Chris Middleton, and then it's Drew Holiday at 2.4, and then DJ, and then Dante. Um, here's the percentages for those players. Giannis, 32.4% on those. Chris, 44%. Jesus. Drew Holiday, this is promising, 40%. That's good. That's good. DJ Augustine, 32%. Dante, 35%. Now, what about catch and shoot three pointers. So I, I just looked it up in terms of leading the team. I'm not sure, but I see that Giannis is shooting 10% from catch. So maybe that, maybe I was wrong in trying to diagnose it. Maybe well, doing the pull up is his way to go about it. No, no, no. But I think, I think the sentiment of what you're talking about is correct. I, there, I think there has been weird stuff about those stats. I'm pretty sure if you look back historically, he's been, for some reason, a horrendous catch and shoot three point shooter, which is strange, but the sentiment behind what you're saying is, is correct. Like get it within the flow of the offense stuff that stuff that isn't Giannis just pulling up for the heat check right at the start of a possession. The the thing that was so promising about some of these is clearly there were opportunities that were sagging off him 10 feet or whatever he could do. He could have done whatever he wanted. He could have just shot the three pointer if that's what he wanted, but instead he decided to, okay, let me just go in a little let me see if I can find a kick out right here. Let me go in a little and see if I can get a quick spin move on this guy. Let me go in a little, see if I can get on the block and make a pass out of that. Let me go in a little, and then maybe I'll back out a little, and then maybe I'll work the offense a little more because that's that's kind of what a point guard can do is, is you can say, okay, let's reset this back up, make another, do something else for me, and I'll see if I can get this going. So I, I think it's a lot more about, it's not it's not a, about a number. It, it's not even necessarily, I, I, I don't want to necessarily even get into like the types Obviously, even though I just forced you guys to have that discussion, uh, I don't even want to get into that because I think it just gets into it starts to get into the mechanic stuff. It starts to get into the type of way he's used in this offense, and he's he's never going to be a guy who's going to be like a clear spacer. But it's it's all about 
finding his flow, making just not feeling like, okay, this is the option for this possession. I'm going to pull up for a three-pointer. There's probably, if if you're going to do that, there's four other guys on the floor that I would rather have pull up for that three-pointer at almost all times than you, Giannis. That is, most of the time, that is the worst shot that the Bucks offense could get unless it's like, well, we all know what worse shots would be. Like Thanos is pulling up for three-pointer, you know, any any of that kind of stuff. But most of the time, a Giannis pull-up is not the best shot for that possession. We've talked for years and years about the, the Bucks seemingly wasting possessions and, and the deliberate, even though it slows down the pace a little, might take a little longer. This team plays in transition so frequently still that I'm not too concerned about times where they, they want to take their time and, and, and really work through all of the, the possible options. Yeah, I think I wouldn't say it's necessarily like the Drew influence because there have been games where Giannis still does stupid stuff. But this past <laughs> week in particular, I don't know. In watching the games, it didn't feel like there were a lot of possessions. And maybe it's partially the other defenses not having the personnel or like moving quick enough to form the same kind of wall. But there were even times against Portland where Giannis would get into the paint and there would be four defenders all over him. And instead of hurtling his body through all four defenders and inevitably getting called for the charge... <laughs> I'd have to look at his turnover numbers. They seemed really low this week, and like his foul numbers were really low. And I think that belies it, it matches up with the eye test where you watch, and it was very rare that Giannis would still drive. Like that would still be part of his, you know, his repertoire. And he was very good at like avoiding contact if, like, an Enos Kander tried to set up for a charge or whatever. But I think this week, especially, you watch Drew out there, and he's so in control. That's what we've talked about. That's what's most impressive about him. He's very in control with this game. And Giannis is never going to be that in control just because they're very different players, they're different statures, their roles are different. But if you can kind of pick up a little bit the same sort of influence, the fact that you can wait a couple more seconds, you don't have to make a bang-bang decision right here, or otherwise the, the like possession is a waste. He can wait and have the defense come to him and pass out without having to do it at 100 miles an hour while he's like off both his feet, all those sorts of things. Understand that the defense is going to respect you by throwing either all their attention at you or actually putting their physical bodies around you. And you that will happen whether or not you're moving at two miles an hour or you're moving at 100 miles an hour. So if you can closer move towards the two miles an hour, that saves abuse on you. And it makes finding the other guys around you a lot easier. Like you don't have to make impossible passes all the time to make a possession work. And I, I thought that was something that we really saw this week from Giannis. And if that continues... That's ideally what we're looking for this season. Like that's that's the dream is you move away from battering Ram Giannis to like in control but still a hammer Giannis. And this week really exemplified that in my opinion. Yeah, I mean the last this week Giannis has had a total of eleven turnovers. He had one against Portland, four against the Pacers, three in and the three in the first Cavs game, three in the second Cavs game. And I know in the second Cavs game one of them was an offensive foul. So it is def- it's definitely the improved decision-making. I don't know if it's just the defense is not as challenging in forming that wall. I don't know if Giannis is just if things are starting to click a little bit more. I know he was saying that he still hasn't fully, you know, felt like he's hit that next level yet. And I think it also helps that what we're seeing out of Giannis this week has been really good is the low amount of three points, three pointers that have been attempted and him hitting free throws. I think he's pretty much been above 60 every time, which we could not have said, you know, even last week. So 
I think it's good to see Giannis starting to. I think it's the most fluid. I think it was the Pacers game where I said it's the most fluid that he's looked all season. And that's not because he had a triple double. It just seems as though, kind of like what Riley was saying, his decision making, even when he gets to the paint, has improved. His free throw shooting has improved. His decision not to shoot a bad three. It, it's just, it's very good to see him play more controlled. I and mean, he didn't have a foul against the Pacers. Like that was another thing that was really impressive is no fouls against the Pacers, which normally he gets one or two dumb fouls because he's reaching in the backcourt or he's trying to reach when someone's, you know, in the post. Like he still does a lot of stupid things, but it seems as though he's trying to cut those out and he's just play more within himself instead of trying to force everything. I don't think so. I don't know if there's anything particular from the second Cavs games you guys want to talk about, but is it safe to say this was the best week of the season for the Bucks? I mean, obviously record-wise, but I would say more importantly, if you're looking for what's the ideal balance between the big three of Drew, Chris, and Giannis, this was like a perfect... I feel bad that we have talked about Chris so little this year, even though he's having he's playing out of his mind like as a career season in almost every statistical regard, but... I thought this week was like the best week of the season where this was as close to the ideal as you could expect 20 some games into the season. What did you guys think? I would agree. I think having that, having Giannis, Chris and Drew all play well at the same time has really helped Milwaukee. And also they're still getting good contributions from their bench, especially Brent Forbes, which shout out to him. He went six of six from three in the second Cavs game. Like it was Milwaukee's offense is really clicking right now and a lot of the bench guys are contributing to that you know Bobby Portis still having a fantastic year he didn't even he didn't score that much I think he only had three points but defensively he was holding his own against Drummond he was holding his own against Larry Nance like he was still it was weird seeing him in lineups with Brooke and Deion like there are times where he was in a lineup with Brooke there's times where he was in a lineup with Giannis and I think that helped out where he still played with himself Brent Forbes shooting the ball really really well this past couple weeks I feel like you know Pat Connaughton offensively still making the right choices still flies by in defense whatever but yeah this is definitely in terms of what you hope Milwaukee can be this has definitely been the week where Giannis Chris and Drew are all playing well at the same time they're getting contributions from guys on their bench Britt Forbes is coming in hitting the shots that he needs to hit and you know you got Brooke and Dante kind of just doing what they need to do could they be better? Sure, but they're still doing exactly what we're asking them to do. We're asking them to stay above average on defense. We're asking them to take those threes if they're open. Maybe they fall, maybe they don't, but this is what, out of anything you want to see the Bucks do at its peak, what we saw this week has been close to it. Well, and I think, you know, as you were saying, Kyle, the fact that Dante and Brooke have been okay, I think it's difficult for us to underestimate the fact that Eric Bledsoe's usage, his role in the offense, essentially disappearing completely in the playoffs, and the cascading effect that that has in forcing a guy like Brooke and a guy like Dante or last year West, for example, or whoever, to step up and really fill that hole on like a moment's notice. Ideally, I mean, if things continue ahead, it's we haven't seen him in the playoffs, but I feel confident that Drew is not going to have that sort of situation. And if that's the case. If your top three guys are playing like your top three guys, that you don't have to adjust for that on the fly in the playoffs. And I think maybe we even underestimated how much of a, you know, wrench that throws into things for the Bucks in the past when Eric is out there, but he's not really out there. 
And it's like, okay, well, Brooke, you haven't really done this all season, but do you want to be like the third guy on offense? What do, how do you feel? Or Dante, you want to be the third guy in the playoffs? And so in this situation, as we've seen throughout the season, if Drew keeps this up, I think that it's like a tide that lifts all boats, right? And if they can work out the you know, kinks in the rest of the rotation, I think this is a team that right now, if this past week is any indication, could definitely be a really dangerous team in the playoffs if kind of things hit things right at the right moment. Do you feel comfortable with how, obviously all of these game games were routes, so which I think part of that formula is the fact that Big Three played pretty well at the same time as the bench. Do you feel comfortable with how much the bench seemed to play into these last couple wins? I'm just thinking about earlier in the season when the bench hasn't showed up and it's and it's kind of relying on those Big Three and they haven't always been able to pull it out. I, I'm just thinking, I'm just trying to think if like, you know, inevitably in the playoffs at some point some of these bench players might disappear or or they may not have the biggest performance and this is this is a week where obviously you didn't need the big three this week but uh I just think about you know Chris taking not that many shots and just trying to make sure that they would still feel empowered to be like you are still our best option you need to be taking these shots not like not bring Forbes in this game I mean I think it's at hard this to point, say I mean, like I think we know Bobby's going to play off the bench. Brent Forbes is going to play off the bench and DJ Agassi. Like those are the three guys that are for sure coming off the bench, getting, you know, 15 to 20 ish minutes. Maybe Pat Connaughton does as well, but Bryn, Bobby and DJ are the three guys. We know Bobby's going to get his shots. We know he's going to take those shots. We're not expecting him to defend as well. We're expecting him to get buckets. Bryn, I've always said, if he's hitting his shots, he has to play. If he's not hitting his shots, it's really hard to justify playing him. Now, he's not as bad defensively as I thought going in, but I still think that rings true. And DJ Augustine, I mean, last night was the best that he's looked all season, to be honest. And I think he's the one where it's kind of like, if he can't get going, then it started a little bit of concern. Because, like, do you put Dante in more ball handling situations? Do you make Giannis and Chris more? That, that's the guy that I'm like, if he doesn't get going, then I start getting concerned in the long run. Because then you're forcing Giannis and Chris and Dante to take more of the ball handling respond, play playmaking role if Drew's not on the floor. So the difference between the DJ Augustine and so the, my, the way that I'm framing this is, yes, so Bobby Porras is going to get his shots. I'm not concerned about that. He seems like he's been wildly consistent with that, and that's going to be the same in the playoffs. Bryn, he's been good because he's making shots, and that's all you really expect from him. So that's a little bit more that could come and go, I think, with any sort of jump shooter that's streaky. So, But I'm not concerned about him not being willing to take the shots. It's just with any other shooter, is he actually making them? The DJ Augustine point from Kyle is a good one. The one thing that gives me a little bit more confidence, though, is so let's say you have Eric and George Hill or Drew and DJ Augustine, because those are obviously the kind of fill-ins. In the past, like I said, you're missing Eric in the playoffs almost completely. It's like, okay, well, you have George Hill, but George Hill is not – he was good, but I'm not sure if you could say he's good enough to be your third option. And this time around, even though DJ Augustine seems to be a little bit of a lesser player in terms of production or like dominating an offense the way that George Hill could be off the bench, the fact that Drew is out there and seems to be more reliable, it takes the pressure off of those bench minutes. Now, that doesn't mean that 
the bench doesn't matter at all. But I feel a little bit more confident just because, again, we go all the way around. Your lead guard is somebody who looks like he will be able to contribute in the playoffs, and therefore I'm not as concerned. And he seems to be totally capable of playing really deep into the playoffs, lots of minutes. You know, if you spell him for just a couple of minutes, whereas in the past it's like, well, what the hell are we going to do? Our lead point guard, who usually averages like 32, 33 minutes a night, is not here. And so you have to on the fly fill that in. And that doesn't seem like that's going to be a problem this year. So I'm not concerned about it um, any more than just our shots going to fall, uh, which is, I think, a problem for any sort of team, really. Any feeling like Chris Middleton should be getting more shots? Or do we feel like he's someone who just this week, especially, just felt like he's, I'm just going to work in the flow of the offense. They don't really need me this week. Yeah, I think it's more the flow of the offense where it was working. Don't mess it up. Don't try and decide I have to get my shots. If Milwaukee if Milwaukee hits a rut of struggle offensively where shots just aren't falling or they can't get anything, then yes, Chris needs to be that guy who's saying, I'm going to take these shots. I'm going to get us out of this. But if the offense is flowing and shooting the ball well and everything's going well, no, no reason for him to specifically hunt out to get more shots on his own if he doesn't have to. Yeah, and, I, and also, I mean, this season, it's not like he's had an issue with getting shots up for whatever reason. It, again, whether or not it's by design or whatever, he just it seemed to have dropped off this past week. But up until that point, I'm looking at the game log now. Almost every single game prior to that, he had 15 or more, you know, jump shot or whatever attempts from the floor. So it, four games, I'm not concerned about it being some sort of trend where now Chris is, you know, taking his foot off the gas pedal. I thought throughout the season what was most impressive was he never had a moment where he kind of dropped off but you know it's a long season if he gets back to that i'm not too concerned about it fair enough all right let's move on guys it's been a while it's been an incredibly incredibly long time but we have to do it we have to do it it's time for dante's inferno We can use it together. I think I can be a professional basketball player. Guys, I want to talk about Dante because I I obviously always want to talk about Dante. But this week in particular, I want to talk about Dante only because uh, it's been a while and I I didn't have any other second topic for us to talk about. So talking about Dante (laughs) DiVincenzo this week, I wanted to talk about him in the context of the season he's had going from first team all NBA candidate, obviously in the first couple games when he's shooting 64% from three to can't make a three pointer to this week. Yeah. You know, having some decent games, having some weird games. He's an interesting player. We've always said that he does stuff. He's been in the starting lineup now for the entirety of the, of the year. How are we feeling about Dante DiVincenzo? starting Milwaukee Buck, Kyle? I, I think he's been fine. I mean, obviously, if you can, if if there is a trade out there that can upgrade on him, you make that trade. But I think the problem was he started so well. He was shooting the ball 60-something percent. Looks to be this guy. He's consistently scoring double digits. On fire. Like, he is on fire. Like, he has been this guy. He's doing it all. He's creating turnovers. It was a fantastic start for him. And then... Last month, just he just hit a wall, and then he's not shooting the ball as well. He's not getting as involved in the offense. It seems as though he's kind of 
more in the peripherals. It, it has it, it was a struggle, and that's going to happen at some point this season. And he seems to have slowly turned it around this time. You know, he pretty much was better than Malcolm Brogdon in the Pacers game, so that was always a win. So I think he's, I think he's fine as a starter. I don't think I'm not in the opinion of having Bryn Forbes start over Dante. I can understand it. I will entertain it. I just don't think we need to do that now. I think right now his role is sometimes you're going to get, you know, 16, a 16, 20 point game from him. Sometimes he's going to only get you four or five points. Like that's just who he is. And unless, like I said, you find a clear cut guy that is better than him that you can throw in the starting lineup. I think you just got to roll with it. If you, the shots that he's taking, they were mainly open. It's not like he's just chucking shots and just taking bad shots. They're good looks. They're just not falling at least last month. So I'm not, I'm not worried about him. I would say stick with him, if unless you get a better player to start over him. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't like I said, start Brent Forbes over him. I still think you roll with Dante in the starting lineup. Kyle stole my thunder. I was gonna say I'm much happier to have him as my starting two guard than Malcolm Brogdon. Uh, <laughs> I was, so Dante's. I think it would be a beautiful thing if he finishes the season and somehow maintains that 40% three point. Like even if it's just, I mean, crashing and burning at the end, if he's able to, I would love to be able to have us go back and say, Hey, you know what? Dante was able to shoot 40% from three for one season as an NBA player. Um, He's strange because he's so, the thing is if Bryn Forbes seemed to be like affected by the fact that he's coming off the bench and like not as effective for whatever reason there, but he's come in these past couple of games, Brent Forbes, I should say, and he's been, you know, absolutely hot from the floor. Like, no worries whatsoever. And so I'm also of the opinion that you leave Dante out there. Uh, hopefully he works through it. I still think he's probably a plus defender. I was saying the other night that it feels like every single Dante basket is the most belabored thing ever. Like, they aren't bad shots, but it's like I get tired watching him out there try to, like, make things happen in the paint. And so... I don't know if that probably has no effect on him, but he's just, he's a, a strange player to watch play. Um, I don't know. I still think it would have been cool had we had Bogdan, but uh, you know, I guess that's neither here nor there. For all things considered, he's been he's been totally fine as the fifth starter. It's not been a disaster where it's like you have to call for Bryn Forbes to be out there. Um, I think maybe once you get to the tra- trade deadline, if nobody picks him up, then maybe you might be more willing to experiment. But at this point, let him work through it. Uh, if he ends up being a plus player, then that's super helpful in your starting lineup. Do you remember the conversation we had last year when <clears throat> the season was on fumes and we were like, what, you know, what if we let Wes Matthews, you know, he was able to drive a little bit in that last game. Maybe, maybe this, this offense is too restrictive. Doesn't allow him to do some of the things that maybe he could do beyond just catch and shoot. Well, that's basically what Dante is doing, right? So Dante is the fifth starter. And instead of just catching and shooting, he is, taking some ball handling duties under his, under his wing, driving directly into a, into a man seemingly all the way to the basket. I, I, I've never seen someone who is constantly able to just drive directly into a person and then not separate at all. Uh, but it, it's an impressive ability to do so. You saw him a few times this week where I, I'm not going to give him that much kudos because he drove to the basket and the way he created something was basically leaving his feet and someone was in the dunker spot and there were a little bit of a release valve for him. 
kind of like that seems to work into the theory of the of the dunker spot but we're not seeing him like kick out for three all that often it's you know for him i just think he needs to for a little while here play a little more under control unto himself just try to do a little bit less stuff offensively it's you should do you can do stuff defensively and i think occasionally it gets him in a lot of trouble i think just last night he was went absolutely in bugged the the crap out of me he went absolutely insane trying to get in get over a pick so he like guessed which way a guy was gonna go and then he just immediately went him let him drive right to the basket i was like just just be a little bit more patient you can stay in front of these guys like you have pretty decent feet so for him he does he has he has decent feet defensively Uh, i was just concerned because we know that he almost lost one of his feet oh yes yeah yeah. (laughs) we know he works on that every day right he takes care of it every day for fear of it falling off but you know i think for him he i like that he can do stuff but he needs to do a little less stuff i think especially within the context of the starters this is like the same conversation. So like when you think of what is this player's idealized version, like idealized role, I can picture, okay, Brooke spacing big guy who like boxes out other guys and lets Giannis get, you know, rebounds drew really in control on offense stays on the best player on the other team can switch and all that. Everybody else with Dante, I'm like, I have no idea what his ideal role, like what does a really good Dante game look like? And so this is the issue with a player who's like a jack of all trades, but master of none situation where besides getting steals and throwing his body way in the air to like get clobbered for offensive rebounds, there's not much else I can say and be like, this is something that Dante's really good at. And I think that's just hard for a player to really know his role, especially a, a guy who's still new to the league. First two seasons kind of weird between injuries and like the bubble, like trying to really figure out what his place is and what how he's most effective. I think that kind of shows in the way that he kind of chaotically plays and does different things week to week or whatever. So I don't really blame him, but it, it is a detriment as a guy who's still figuring out what his role is. And I can't even idealize or like think of what his ideal role is with this team. Well, it's kind of tough because it's like, on the one hand, you want to be able to just help when he can help but at the other end it's like okay you got to specialize in something sooner rather than later and maybe that's just also his changing role you know his rookie year he would play but then it was he nearly lost his foot so that got interrupted and then he comes <laughs> into the year two and he's like this guy off the bench he's a six he's almost like a six man he comes off the bench he's able to do a little bit more and now he's getting thrown into a starting lineup so now he's got to relearn i think it's just because he's had to learn his role year after year where maybe that's why it's kind of hard to find out what exactly is or what the best utilized version of it is. It's just because the second we think we know what's going to be or what it can be, he almost it, it almost changes. So I would think at this rate, it's kind of a shoot 35 to 40%, get a couple steals, drive to the lane every once in a while, just do limit the damage, limit the negative damage you can do as much as possible. I think that's what an idealized role for him right now is. Just don't F things up when you're in the game. Don't do too much. Play within the system. Do what you need to do. And to be fair to him, too, you're coming on to this sort of contender team, and it is strange. Like, okay, your foot all-world uh, forward is the guy who brings the ball up the court. 
you have another guard who starts with you who doesn't really like holding onto the ball or like being a point guard. So it's like, well, should I like initiate some offense or so? I mean, we kind of have a weird system just based on the, the guys who are around him. And, and like I said, trying to figure out what, how you should play best and be most effective. I mean, it seems like it kind of shifts all the time. And uh, on top of all that, he plays under a coach that doesn't have a lot of structure to his offense. Uh, purportedly, I mean, I always hammer back on Budenholzer and be like, yeah, guys just do whatever they want, like 80 to 90% of the time out there. And if that's the case for a young guy who, I mean, I don't watch any sort of Villanova basketball, but if that system is any more structured and you come to Milwaukee, it's like, well, we kind of just do whatever. And it's like, okay, uh, I, can, I can do whatever. And it's just kind of, it's, it's hard if you haven't had experience or you're not like an all-world talent to be able to figure out and even Brooke out there who isn't an all-world talent, but he has a very defined role on offense. Stand in the corner, stand in the perimeter, occasionally go inside. Like, that's what his role is. For a guy like Dante, whoever fills that second guard spot, it's really tough to even figure out, no matter who it is, whether it be Wes, whether it be him, what are you going to do? And I'm not sure if there's really any sort of expectation or, like, definition of what that guy's supposed to do for us. All fair points. Well, love you, Dante. Thank you. Yes, thank you for indulging. <laughs> we will not compare you to Kevin Hart. Yeah, yeah. Come on the <laughs> podcast, Dante. You always have a spot, my friend. Wow. Uh, okay, we're gonna close out. We're just gonna end it right now. But thank you both <laughs> to you for indulging me with the Dante's Inferno chat. That was fun. All right, everyone, stick around. On the other side of this, we're gonna close out with our miscellaneous topics and predictions for the week. So stay tuned. All right, we're back. Kyle's got the rapid-fire questions. Fire away. All right, so the first one is you can bring one NBA player back to do commentary. You cannot pick Marcus Johnson. You cannot pick Cindy Moncrief. What former player are you choosing to have next to Jim Paschke? I'm going to choose Ray Allen because – I didn't watch the Portland game live, so I just I heard everybody talking about Jim Paschke talking about Ray Allen, like talking to Drew, and then Jim was like, "Oh, I sat down in my office with Ray Allen and Brandon Jennings. I can only imagine the paths of fate that brought those three together." But it seemed like he sat and he got to, you know, Ray tried to break down like Milwaukee and like what it means to be a basketball player in Milwaukee and be part of the city to Brandon Jennings when he was a rookie. Um, it seems like Ray is. Seems like a nice enough guy. I'm, I'm sure he's quite intelligent. He, Besides like the George Carl thing, it seems like he doesn't have any sort of hard feelings for the city. Obviously, he started his career here. So I would choose Ray Allen. Um, I, you know, It's got to be better than Steve Novak. It has to be. So I would choose Ray. Man, Ray was a good pick. Uh, I mean, the guys up there clearly put out a cry for help this last week. Urson needs something to do. <laughs> He's out there shooting in the snow. He he can clearly he can probably talk about geopolitical issues, world political uh-huh. issues. I don't know how often Paschke wants to get into that, but um, he's a Bucks legend. Mm-hmm. I mean, he can he can clearly weigh in on whether a charge was a charge or not. Mm-hmm. Um, he can weigh in on offensive rebound tactics in terms of bouncing the ball off the boards four times on your own shot and then making it go in. Uh, I think Ursan just has a has a wealth of, of knowledge to offer. So he might be kind of fun. Ursan's whole thing would be like, I taught Giannis that. Because like, obviously, <laughs> Ursan has been here for almost all of Giannis's career. He's like, yeah, I taught him that. Like that, that spin move into the fadeaway, I taught him that. 
<laughs> I I was gonna say John Henson was gonna be my pick. I think he would be a very chill dude, and he would just mm-hmm, make yeah. and he and he's naturally funny. So I think he would at least bring more personality to it. Like I don't know, mm-hmm. I don't know to what extent his basketball intelligent is. I don't think he's not intelligent. I just don't know how. It's not like Ray Allen. It's not like Urzan. It's not like Marcus, where he, they've had this wealth of experience. But I think he would at least hold his own, and he would definitely be better than Steve Novak. So I went with John Henson. Next question. Who is a celebrity or athlete that you hated growing up that you kind of tolerate or like now? Oh, man. That's tough. Um, It is tough. I'm trying to think of, like, football players. Uh, I hated Randy Moss for a lot of reasons because he was a wildly successful wide receiver. My brother chose to be a Vikings fan to be a contrarian and a loser. Uh, and watching like the Dante Culpepper Randy Moss connection was infuriating as a Packers fan when I was a kid. So, but these days Randy seems like seems like a really nice guy. Like uh, you know he's pretty gracious, uh, whereas a lot of players end up being super bitter to other guys who come after them or whatever. So, uh, probably Randy Moss I'm cool with. Oh, uh, let's see. Gosh, I don't know. I guess I was, I guess I was kind of bitter at JJ Redick for the trade to Milwaukee and how he didn't seem to like it here. But mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I guess I just kind of was like, I just need to let that go. Like whatever, the guy's going to be around for a while. I'm, I'm older. I'm wiser now. The the dude was just doing what he had to do, and I probably wouldn't have wanted to to stick around in the that current <laughs> franchise at that point either. So I guess JJ I think Redick, for me. It's Terrell Owens. I just, because he was always that guy that seemed to make the catch, kind of similar as like Randy Moss, where it's like, he's so good. It was just very frustrating growing up as a Packer fan. But as Mm -hmm. I've gotten older, it's like, okay, you were really good. And I think a lot of how people portrayed you was unfair. So I went with Terrell Owens. Um, One guy I haven't forgiven, Russell Wilson. I'm still not going to forgive you, Russell Wilson, for the Seattle uh, playoff win. Oh, I mean, yeah. Russell Wilson, Brett Favre, like the two guys where it's like, I liked them at first and now I despise. No, like GTFO. (laughs) Yeah, Brett not doing any favors for himself lately. (laughs) Do you guys at... (laughs) Do you guys as died in the wool, I mean, huge Badger lovers... Do you feel a little embarrassed with how everybody went all out for Russell Wilson when he came here? Like as if he had was born and raised in like Rhinelander and he was just some, I, I felt like that whole thing, that was pathetic for me guys. Let's be honest. Badger fans in general, Russell Wilson showing up, he's like, this guy is actually my son. That was a little pathetic, huh? I think the problem was it was like everyone knew he was good coming in. So we yeah. had to like hype him up because it's like, wow, someone actually chose Wisconsin. And a, qu- a quarterback shows Wisconsin. Like, we have to, like, no matter what happens, we have to get behind this guy. And then he was good in the one year. And everyone's yeah. like, see, <laughs> yeah. he's good. We told you. And then he went pro. And it's like, see? And, but I think, yeah, it's weird when people would treat it like, oh, yeah, he, like, Wisconsin made or something. Like, yeah, it was Wisconsin Badgers <laughs> that built him. And it's like, it's not, but... Russell no. Wilson will throw like a 70 yard Hail Mary and would be like, I taught him that in Wausau. That's <laughs> like how people were like treating it in the aftermath. I was like, this is strange. This is just weird to experience. Uh, I, don't, right. I don't have anything to say about him. You can, okay. you can <laughs> Next question. You win the lottery. What's the first thing you're doing? 
paying off my student loans, getting rid calling of those up a, vultures. Calling up a financial advisor, making sure I invested wisely. Uh, <laughs> sir, I'd like to not just put this in my savings, which is what I'll normally do with all my money because I'm a financial mm-hmm. idiot. So please tell me what to do. <laughs> I was going to say put in GameStop or AMC. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, something tells me, yeah, all right. You'd probably be better off trying to like buy the bucks or something like that, to be honest. Like, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to, we're going to, it's not going to be LED. It's going to be LEC. That's what it's going to be. You're going to buy, you're going to buy dining out LEC. No, I'd probably pay off my house and then I don't know what I would do after that. Mm-hmm. Maybe retire. I don't know. And then the final question I had you can bring back MySpace, but you have to get rid of a social media that isn't Facebook. What are you picking? I see. I knew Facebook would be the easy choice, so yeah. Facebook cannot be replaced with MySpace. Were you guys on MySpace? I was never on MySpace. Oh, I was. Hell yeah, Adam. No, I went right to Facebook. One I would get rid of. I don't know. So I'd probably. So I guess now it's just what social media are you getting rid of besides Facebook? I, I would probably free the planet from Twitter. Let's just let's break this curse that's holding all of us because it's bad. I think we need to just break Twitter, uh, and that might be the move. So I'd probably bring my MySpace back, do Twitter instead. I would one I would one hundred percent get rid of Twitter. I mean, even now, like the thing I literally the thing I I prefer more during like a Packer game is just like following a live blog that's controlled by one person that I kind of like as mm-hmm. opposed to Twitter and refreshing it and seeing oh what are the five new things that people have to say oh two of them are promoted tweets and the other three are just like about i don't know eating cookies or something i i i I hate going on my phone i hate it so much i i can't suggest enough this is really low of of me because i'm on the staff but brew hoop game threads if you want something that's a little less toxic it's still auto updates and like all the commenters have a clue what's happening and you'll get some good insights and stuff. I cannot suggest the uh, Brew Hoop game threads enough. It's it's a nice change of pace from the usual stupidity of Twitter. That I, I agree. And I run the damn Twitter account. I'm like, yeah, go to the game thread. <laughs> <laughs> Don't bother with Twitter. <laughs> I would also replace Twitter for MySpace. Yeah. Oh god, you guys should have been on MySpace. It was a great time. The drama that would happen if you kick someone out of your top eight friends. Oh man, that was some wild shit back then. <laughs> Uh, that's it for my rapid fire questions. Well, you're, you're up next again for a, a film oh, review. Yeah. I'm kind of interested in this one. I forgot. Yeah. Film review. Okay. So <laughs> the past few weekends, now that my kid is awake more often than not, we have to find ways to entertain him. And at this point, I think Emma is sick of me playing sports and soccer all the time. So we've just been using the good old Disney plus. Um, so we've been watching a lot of classic Disney movies. And last weekend, we watched Tarzan, which I don't think I've seen start to finish in over 10 years, just because it's not really one of those outs. Like, it was never one of my favorite ones, because I think by the time it came out, I was like eight or nine or something. It was one of those where it's like it was kind of at the tail end of me watching Disney movies all the time. Tarzan still holds up. It's still a pretty solid movie. Um, I think I laughed because there's one moment where jane was falling or something and i was like see if tarzan had just let her fall most of the problems wouldn't have happened just let the colonizers fail like come on now it's that simple so um otherwise yeah music's still good yeah the music absolutely slaps still um story is fine 
animation's good. So I, I give it a solid seven. Like it still holds up pretty well. I don't know if they've remade remade it. And if they do, I wouldn't be surprised. But Tarzan's still a selling movie after all these years. Yeah, I think Phil Collins doesn't get nearly enough credit for putting out one of the GOAT soundtracks to a Disney film. That's banger after banger on that one. I don't think there's one song that quits. Yeah, it's one of those where I forgot how many good songs were on there. Just because I feel like when you think of Disney songs, you think, you know, Lion King, you think Little Mermaid. Maybe I'll make a man of you from Mulan, but you really don't think of anything from Tarzan. I was like, that's kind of sad. It's, it, it should definitely be up there. That was like during that period in Disney movies where it was like, yeah, we're just like, it was oddly violent. Cause in Tarzan, he has that one where he, he like fights the like cheater or whatever. Yeah. And then what's his face gets hanged at the end. Yeah. That was a, kid, that was thing like, caught okay. me off guard. I was like, oh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh-huh. God and damn. Then, like, in, Mulan, I don't think anybody, like, the one dude gets blown up in, like, the fireworks explosion, but that's, like, a movie about war, too. I don't know. There was, like, a dark turn in Disney films at, like, in the late 90s for whatever reason. It really, yeah. The 90s Disney movies are, like, just dark and violent, and, like, I feel like the current Disney movies are just, like, sad and depressing. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody check in on Mickey Mouse. How's he doing? He's not good. Not good, apparently. (laughs) Uh, wait, what did you give it for a score? Seven. Seven, okay. Because of the longevity, like, I, we put it on, watched it. I thought it was solid. I was, you know, I actually was paying more attention to it than I thought I would. Yeah, for some, for a movie made in the 90s, it still holds up really well. Solid. Tarzan gets a 7.0 from Kyle. All right, let's move on to predictions for the week. West, this uh, West Coast road trip is getting underway. I'm very excited for this one. Some quality opponents. We should learn a lot more about the Bucks. Uh, one of those will be an intriguing rematch. So we have February 8th at Denver, February 10th at Phoenix, and then February 13th at Utah. Then there's a game next Sunday against OKC, but I didn't include that here because I think we'll record before that. So what's your prediction for these three games, Riley? I think they'll go one and two. I think they'll beat the Jazz. But I think um, it, it'll be an interesting test because Denver, the way that Jokic plays, is so radically different from pretty much every other big man we've had to play so far this season. Um, and then Phoenix, it feels like Devin Booker uh, always kills us. He's like designed to kill the zone drop scheme. So I think two losses there and then we'll beat the Jazz is what I'm guessing. I, uh, I'm i saying one and two. I think they beat Denver. Because I think Denver's out Jamal Murray, but I wouldn't be surprised if Jokic just dropped like a thirty-point triple double. They always and the Bucks always seem to have trouble playing in Utah. I don't know what it is, but you, anytime they play Utah, they just struggle immensely. And I don't think they'll allow another franchise amount of threes. But I don't know. Like I don't know the last time the Bucks have won in Utah, and I feel like they've always and they've also historically struggled in Phoenix as well. So I will say they beat Denver, lose to Phoenix. And both games will be close, but they'll lose to Phoenix and the Jazz. I'm going to go 2-1. and one. I think they would traditionally struggle on some of these places, but I think the home court advantage is hopefully muted, and we'll find out whether the issues with them were potentially due to home court or if they were due to travel. So I'll be interested to see how that goes. But I think they'll go two and one. I think I'm not sure which one of these games they'll drop, honestly. But I think they'll drop one of them. Very excited to see 
how the defense holds up against Utah this time around. Very intrigued to see if they'll they'll get switching more incorporated here after this last week. So hopefully hopefully we have another solid week of Bucks games to talk about, but at the very least we will have something to talk about next week. That is for certain. And thank you again to everyone for listening. That'll do it for this week's episode. Go to brewhoop.com for all of our usual coverage. Share the podcast with your friends. Follow us on Twitter. Uh, contrary to our advice earlier, go follow us on Twitter. Uh, there's still lots of good stuff there for fire takes from Kyle. And then obviously brewhoop.com, like we said earlier, if you're looking to get involved, the comment section can probably be a little bit intimidating because there's a lot of comments that happen over and over, but everyone's really welcoming. They want to have robust discussions. There's more characters to play with. There's more time to play with people. We'll talk after games, before games. So definitely go ahead there and, and sign up for an account on brewhoop.com if you haven't already and get involved in the commentary. So it's a lot of fun. Thank you to everyone for listening. We will talk to you again soon. Bye.